The time is now 6 o'clock. Welcome to WORT's local news for Monday, September 25th, 2023. I'm your host, Rachel Fields. And I'm your host, Sam Swartz. In tonight's news... A panhandling ordinance in Madison could soon be repealed. A new report finds statewide water usage has trended down by a third in the last quarter century. And in the second half of the show, we get an abbreviated look ahead at local government, investigate the actual cost of childcare, and meet the Donut King. All these and more on tonight's news. This is Rachel Fields and Sam Swartz with your local news, coming to you live from the WORT studios in beautiful downtown Madison. Here are tonight's headlines. Last week on WIZM News, Wisconsin Representative Steve Doyle revealed that he was the deciding vote in a veto override attempt by state Republicans. Wisconsin Republicans hold a veto-proof supermajority in the state Senate and are only three votes away from being able to overturn the governor's veto over in the House. So when two Democrats went home to Milwaukee during a session two weeks ago, the Republicans thought they had the votes to overturn nine bills and over 50 budget provisions vetoed by Governor Evers. That's because Representative Doyle had been sick in his office with COVID. But in response to a vote call from his Republican colleagues, Doyle dragged himself down to the chamber to to cast the deciding vote, blocking the effort. Republican lawmakers in the Wisconsin legislature introduced a bill last Friday that would bar candidates who lose a partisan primary from running in the general election as a writing candidate. The move comes after two GOP candidates for state assembly ran writing campaigns after they had lost their primaries in last year's elections, reports the Milwaukee Journal Sentinel. Most notably, Assembly Speaker Robin Voss faced a writing campaign from challenger Adam Steen after Voss had defeated him in the primary campaign. Although Voss survived the write-in challenge, the campaign revealed rifts in the Republican Party, namely around the legislature's handling of false claims that former President Trump had won the state in the 2020 presidential election. The bill cites a Supreme Court decision that says that general elections are not intended to relitigate intra-party feuds. Meanwhile, a liberal watchdog group has filed a complaint against a secret panel established by Wisconsin Assembly Speaker Robin Voss. The panel is investigating the criteria under which Voss might impeach recently elected Supreme Court Justice Janet Protasiewicz. The complaint argues that the panel is a government body and therefore it must meet in public and its members must be made public, reports the Associated Press. The panel's members are secret, but Voss says it consists of three former Supreme Court justices, although which three is unclear. Only former Justice David Prosser has confirmed that he is on the panel, although he has refused to talk about the work he is doing for the speaker. Meanwhile, Channel 3000 reports that protesters marched in Sauk City this weekend against the idea that Voss could invalidate the results of the Supreme Court election earlier this year. Democratic Senator Melissa Agard of Madison has authored a bill in the Senate that would legalize recreational cannabis in Wisconsin, reports the Wisconsin Examiner. Working in conjunction with Representative Darren Madison of Milwaukee, Senator Agard began the process of circulating the bill for co-sponsorship last Friday, with a final deadline later this week. Wisconsin Democrats have been pushing for legalization of cannabis for years, but Republican lawmakers have consistently opposed the efforts. Just under two-thirds of registered voters in Wisconsin support legalizing weed, according to a 2022 Marquette Law School poll. 
As Madison's office vacancy rates remain high and demand for housing continues to increase, local business parks are pivoting into building housing, reports the Wisconsin State Journal. Both the American Center Business Park on Madison's east side and University Research Park on Madison's west side have announced plans to build more housing on their properties. The move comes after demand for office space remains low following a rise in remote work during the COVID pandemic. Madison's Henry Vilas Zoo has decided to make its zoo after-school program a permanent part of the zoo, reports the Wisconsin State Journal. The program was born during the COVID pandemic, when the zoo let students use its facilities for virtual learning, as well as for on-site educational opportunities. When schools moved back to in-person, the program pivoted to being after-school, where it has become a childcare option. The program currently has a waitlist for its 18 slots, which the zoo hopes to expand. The Highway 18 Outdoor Theater, just outside Jefferson, is looking for a new owner as its longtime owner prepares for retirement. The drive-in movie theater was opened in 1953 and is one of only about 300 drive-ins in operation in the United States, reports the Capital Times. But the longtime owner announced in an email newsletter that he is looking to retire after operating the theater for the last 25 years. Madison's Majestic Theater hosted a fundraiser over the weekend to raise money for a documentary about musician Clyde, Clyde Stubblefield, reports Channel 3000 News. Stubblefield is best known for his work as a drummer with James Brown, where he contributed to the rise of funk. Later in his career, Stubblefield moved to Madison, where he became part of the local music scene. The documentary hopes to celebrate Stubblefield's legacy, as well as cement his status as an influential drummer. And now, on to today's top stories. The city of Madison does away with ordinances it finds unenforceable from time to time. Earlier this year, for example, WORT reported on a move by city leaders to repeal a ban on nunchucks as it cleaned up the municipal code. Other removes in recent years have repealed laws outlawing trick riding on bikes, curfew hours, and public indecency. Now, city leaders could do away with another public safety ban prompted by a Supreme Court just or a Supreme Court ruling nearly a decade ago. WORT news producer Faye Parks has the story. Madison is one of many cities with an ordinance on the books that prevents panhandling. Currently, the city prohibits, quote, procuring or attempting to procure a handout from another in an aggressive or intimidating manner, unquote. Doing so comes with a fine of up to $300 on a third and subsequent violations. The city also adds extra protections against panhandling in certain places around the city, particularly downtown, within 25 feet of a bar, intersection, sidewalk cafe, or ATM. In the ordinance, the city writes that it has an interest in ensuring the flow of pedestrians and in ensuring a safe, pleasant environment for visitors. But the ordinance could be unconstitutional and isn't being enforced. That's after a unanimous ruling from the U.S. Supreme Court eight years ago which found that any solicitation for money is protected First Amendment speech. That ruling has helped undo local laws against panhandling across the country. Just this spring, a federal judge struck down anti-panhandling laws in Alabama. In 2016, a federal court of appeals struck down an anti-panhandling ordinance in Springfield, Illinois. Now, the Madison Common Council is in the process of repealing the city's own panhandling ordinance. A group of four alders introduced the repeal earlier this month and it's headed to review in the city's Public Safety Review Committee in two weeks, on October 11th. Alder Isidore Knox Jr. is on that committee. We'll review the constitutionality of it, and if in fact it has been ruled to be unconstitutional, then we just need to just make sure if 
we have to allow it, that it will be allowed in the safest possible way for our citizens. City Attorney Mike Haas says that the ordinance has not been enforced to the letter since the Supreme Court's ruling eight years ago. There will never really be a practical change whether or not the ordinance is, is repealed. Haas also says that the Madison Police Department is aware that the ordinance in question is unconstitutional and law enforcement has acted accordingly. It's a city ordinance, so the Madison Police Department certainly is aware and has not been enforcing the ordinance. In an interview last week, University of Chicago law professor Genevieve Lakeer told WORT that there are still repercussions to having unenforceable laws on the books. Police can still say, hey, you know, there's this law we heard about. Now, maybe it's actually not enforceable if you, by the time you get to court, there's a good, strong First Amendment defense. But I always worry that having a law on the books that is unenforceable still provides some kind of support or authority for people to act as if they have the right to control this kind of behavior. And so if it's unconstitutional law, I think we should get rid of it. She adds that people who panhandle likely do not have the resources to take their fight to court. Haas says that the city has hesitated to repeal the ordinance completely because there was the possibility that the Supreme Court may, at some point, amend their initial ruling. He says that some broader ordinances affecting panhandlers can stay in place for public safety reasons. There's a separate ordinance which prohibits activity at certain busy intersections in the city, designated intersections. It prohibits standing at those intersections for any period of time. So that wouldn't necessarily include panhandling, but even if somebody was standing at the intersection and was not panhandling, it would be a violation of that ordinance as well. It does not depend on particular activity or particular speech, which is what the Supreme Court decision was all about. The city attorney's office and Madison's traffic engineering department cooperated to evaluate busy roads and intersections throughout Madison and wrote a specific ordinance to make them safer for pedestrians. Under that separate ordinance, on specific roads and intersections, it's illegal to approach a car unless it's parked at the curb or shoulder of the road. And pedestrians are prohibited from standing on medians unless it's to cross the street. Alder Knox says that safety is his main priority when it comes to panhandling in Madison. So my big key is to make sure that it's safe for those people who are panhandling as well as the people in the cars and vehicles who may be inclined to give money to these individuals. Other Wisconsin communities, including the Milwaukee neighborhoods of Waukesha, Wauwatosa, Shorewood, and Glendale, have done away with anti-panhandling laws in recent years, according to data from the National Homelessness Law Center, or NHLC. Those communities were four of eight communities targeted by NHLC and ACLU of Wisconsin in 2018 in a public campaign to repeal anti-panhandling ordinances. In total, that campaign targeted more than 240 similar ordinances across a dozen states. Reporting for WRT News, I'm Faye Parks. Just like states and federal agencies, municipalities of all sizes are grappling with how to make their towns and cities more climate resilient. They're getting extra support from two key federal policies, but there are still a lot of forces surrounding implementation around which local governments are having to work. Mike Mowen of the Wisconsin News Connection has the story. New polling suggests most Americans support nationwide efforts to boost renewable energy capacity under the threat of climate change. A local government leader from Wisconsin says municipalities are doing what they can, even with some challenges in their way. The survey data from the Pew Research Center finds that two-thirds of U.S. adults say America should prioritize developing sources like wind and solar over fossil fuels. 
Madison Mayor Satya Rhodes-Conway says at the local level, elected officials are becoming increasingly aware that climate threats are no longer just a future scenario to deal with. We have to prepare for the impacts that we know are here and are coming. And we have to reduce our emissions so that they don't get worse in the future. And we have to do both of those things at the same time. The mayor offered those comments in a panel discussion led by the Center for American Progress. She says federal policies such as the bipartisan infrastructure law and the Inflation Reduction Act are helping cities fund climate-friendly projects. But she adds most local governments, especially in smaller towns, still lack key staffing to carry out the work. Still, Rhodes-Conway says these federal policies are sending a lot of direct funding support to cities, which helps if there are potential legislative constraints in various states. She notes the infrastructure laws giving Madison more flexibility to gain steam on certain projects. Both our John Nolan Drive bridges to be safer, more pedestrian and bike friendly with better stormwater management. We also just built a new pedestrian and bike bridge over a critical intersection. As for other hurdles to clear, the mayor says there's still room for improvement in getting the word out to local residents and businesses about tax incentives to make their own clean energy investments. And lingering supply chain issues are another factor municipalities face in trying to get more of these projects off the ground. This is Mike Moen for Wisconsin News Connection. Find our trust indicators at publicnewsservice.org. The time right now is 6.19 p.m. and you're listening to the live local news right here on WORT. Fresh water is one of Wisconsin's most valuable natural resources, especially as states across the country deal with historic shortages and costs. The Wisconsin Policy Forum, a statewide nonpartisan policy research organization, recently released a report showing that Wisconsin's water usage has actually gone down. Policy Forum researcher Tyler Burns authored the report. He spoke with WORT News producer Faye Parks earlier this afternoon. Thank you for joining me, Tyler. Yeah, thanks for having me. I appreciate the interest. So to kick things off, can you tell me the major findings of this study on water use in Wisconsin? primary finding is that across the state over the past 25 years, we've seen a decline in the amount of water sold by water utilities. Pretty substantial decline, actually. And the biggest drivers of that decline are residential conservation uses, but then more importantly, industrial users. So there's fewer industrial users and they're using water more efficiently. And so generally speaking, water uses is down across the state, at least in terms of what's sold by water utilities. And part of the impact of that is that while the amount of money we spend on water utilities hasn't grown that much, only about 1.2% a year if you adjust for inflation, we have seen a bigger increase in the cost for each gallon of water sold. And that's because the cost of running the system, you know, pumping water mains, that sort of thing, don't go down with usage. And so you have to pay more for each gallon you end up selling. The impact of that is, is it'll make it a little more difficult to cover big projects like replacing lead laterals or dealing with PFAS contamination, those sorts of things that'll 
put more pressure on each gallon to raise more money, and that could potentially impact you know, family budgets, that sort of thing. And then finally, well, most of Wisconsin's water, generally water secure, there are some places, you know, Central Sands areas come to mind, Waukesha come to mind, where the access to enough water is a concern. You know, in the Central Sands, the issue there is that agricultural users are potentially lowering the groundwater, then that's impacting surface waters, which is important for, you know, lake users, fishing, uh, and ecology of the area. And then in Waukesha, you know, their groundwater is a little bit different, has issues with radium, and so, you know, they've had to pipe water from Lake Michigan. And so that's kind of the three big sort of takeaways from the report. So would you mind walking me through this decrease more specifically? So the conservation efforts and then the industry efforts, what exactly is behind that? What are the specifics to that change? So a couple of the big specifics on the residential side are things like low flow showerheads, low flow toilets, and then also just sort of home efforts, you know, because water prices have kind of gone up, there's a signal that says, hey, you should use less of it. And so people are being a little more careful about simple things like running the shower less, you know, those sorts of things. On the industrial side, and again, that's that's the bigger chunk of the overall decline. There's two things there. One is, you know, industries, water intensive industries like the paper industry, they've made a concerted effort to reduce their use and become more efficient in terms of producing more value per gallon of water sold. But then also, you know, we've seen over the same time period since, you know, 1997, big water users leave the state. And so, you know, that's visible when you look at Madison's a good example. We've sold almost a billion fewer gallons now compared to 1997 to industrial users. And that shouldn't be surprising as we think about places like Oscar Mayer leaving, the Sarah Lee Bakery leaving. These are major industrial water users when they leave town we're not going to sell water to them anymore, and, and we'll see these decline. Similarly, you know, the paper industry, there's you know, been paper plants leaving. Villager Brokaw is an example. They're, you know, they were selling almost 1.5 billion gallons of water per year to their paper plant in town. That paper plant left in 2011. We've seen a 100% decline in water sales there. Not only has the paper mill left, but the town of Brokaw has disincorporated, and the water utility no longer sells any water. And so it's a story of both conservation, but then also shifts in the economy, you know, manufacturing plants leaving. So that's kind of the two sides of that. What are the potential benefits and then drawbacks of decreased water usage in Wisconsin? So the benefits, you know, number one, we're water secure. You know, other states, think about the Southwest, you know, they're trying to find places to locate chip factories, you know, locate housing developments. And they're running up against the limits because they don't have sufficient water to provide clean, drinkable, usable water, both to industrial customers or to residential customers. And so that's a big benefit. There's major benefits in terms of reduced energy needs. Each of these gallons that's sold needs to be pumped, needs to be cleaned, needs to be measured, those sorts of things. And so when you stop doing that, you're using a lot less energy. And so there's definite climate benefits there too in terms of energy use and reduced CO2 emissions. And then again, Madison area is a good example. We're actually seeing groundwater recharge. So we're pumping a small enough amount up out of our aquifer that we're actually seeing with rainfall and infiltration, we're seeing the groundwater levels rise again here in the Madison area, which is which is good. Do you anticipate more industries putting down roots here in the future? You know, I kind of think that they would. Water-intensive industries like, again, microchip manufacturing, we have this excess capacity to supply water. And that was actually part of the Foxconn bid from Kenosha. 
potential draw was access to fresh water. And so, you know, as the climate changes and as other areas run out of water, well, that makes Wisconsin more attractive to those sorts of businesses. So I would say all things being equal, yeah, we should see more investment from industries in that area. But that's really difficult to predict, you know, because there's so many other things involved in, in where to locate your business. So you mentioned southwestern states earlier. How does Wisconsin's mm-hmm. water resource compare to other states in the nation? So I think in the report, the most telling item we had was just a quick comparison of our water rates for residential customers. So in Wisconsin, it costs about $59 for residential customers that use about 5,000 gallons a month. If you compare that to California, they're paying $95 for 5,000 gallons. They're paying $95 a month. And so, you know, that price difference kind of shows the impact of water scarcity because, you know, we're able to charge less, our water utilities charge less than in places like California. And so we're more secure in that way. And so this freshwater security, moving forward, when it comes to the effects of climate change, why is having freshwater so important here in Wisconsin? So what we're expecting to see here in Wisconsin is, you know, and across the country is more of these extreme trends, extreme rain events, extreme cold events, extreme droughts. And as Wisconsin is, you know, generally has enough fresh water, we're less susceptible to things like droughts. So we had, you know, this summer we had a drought relatively long, relatively severe in duration compared to some of the other ones we've had in recent years. And, you know, our water supplies weren't really ever in doubt. Whereas when those sorts of extreme droughts hit other states that don't have access to groundwater or surface water that we do here in Wisconsin, they're having to do things like water conservation in terms of not watering their lawns, potentially not irrigating their crops, you know, not flushing their toilets, those sorts of things. Here in Wisconsin, we were not really threatened by those sorts of things. Is there anything else you would like to share with our listeners, either about this report, about your perspective on water as a resource? I guess the one thing I will mention is, again, we've talked about Wisconsin being relatively water secure, and we talked a little bit about places where quantity can be an issue. There are some places Wisconsin is facing, you know, water quality issues, thinking about nutrient pollution in surface water, thinking about things like PFAS. And so, you know, I don't want to sound like, oh, the, the story on water here in Wisconsin is we've got plenty of it and it's great. There are definitely issues facing Wisconsin's water supply, both in quantity and quality. But overall, uh, and especially you know, looking at these trends, it's a, it's a positive story. Thank you again for agreeing to speak with me, Tyler. Yeah, I appreciate it. That was Tyler Burns, a researcher at the Wisconsin Policy Forum. Their latest report on the state's water usage found that it's gone down significantly. That's due to a combination of conservation efforts from private citizens and various industries across Wisconsin. Burns says that this has led to an increase in the price per gallon for consumers because local water companies need funding to keep their facilities running. He also says that there are benefits and drawbacks to decreased water usage. In some cases, it's refilling the groundwater reserves, but it also means that there's less funding to ensure the quality of Wisconsin's fresh water. The time right now is 6.33, and you're listening to the local news on WORT. I'm your host, Sam Swartz, here with my co-host, Rachel Fields. Thanks for joining us. A new report from Forward Analytics, the research arm of the Wisconsin Counties Association, investigates the cost of child care in the state. 
Kevin Dosboy is the deputy director at Forward Analytics and the primary author of the report. He spoke with 8 o'clock Buzz host Brian Standing this morning. Kevin Dosboy joins us now by phone. Welcome to the 8 o'clock Buzz. Thanks, Brian. It's good to be here. So how did you put the study together? What was involved and what kinds of data did you use to track it? Sure. So the study, actually, we started researching it a while ago, well before the special session was called. Child care is such a, it's such a big issue in the state and not just in the state, regionally and nationally. It's, it's so expensive for parents to pay for. So we wanted to kind of see what was driving the cost. But uh, to answer your question, we use data from the U.S. Census Bureau, Bureau of Labor Statistics, and different advocacy groups. So we use data kind of from everywhere to put this together. And uh, in your report, you talk a little bit about how you use some measures that are a little bit different than, say, for example, what the Census Bureau uses to look for demand and supply of child care. What did you do there? Sure. So I'm sure a lot of people probably hear the statistic, the, the number of child care slots that are available the slots per 100 kids that are available. So we looked at those statistics and we weren't, we weren't entirely sold on, on how valid they were now. Because if you think about it, if you have a childcare facility that's licensed to take care of eight kids, okay, and they, they can't hire enough staff, they can't hire somebody that they usually would hire to help take care of those eight kids. So they only offer four slots. They're still licensed for eight. They're still measured like they're, they're providing eight slots, but they're really only providing four. So we didn't really want to use that one. And then, and then you have the number of kids that are, that are in a region of a specific age group. We didn't want to go with that one either. Instead, we, what we did was we went through data to find out the number of kids age zero to six that are in households in which all parents are in the workforce because those are the kids that are typically in need of childcare. Now, that's not perfect, right? Like you have parents that might work opposite shifts or parents that maybe one stays home and they still rely on childcare or they use grandparents or family members or something. So it's not perfect, but it's, it's kind of the best we can get. And so what did your study show? What is the gap between demand and supply here when it comes to childcare? Sure, so we, what we did was compare the, the change over time. So we saw in 2015, we looked at the number of kids per childcare worker in the state. And we broke it down by region, uh, metropolitan statistical area. But we saw that there were 16 kids for every childcare worker in the state in 2015. And that number jumped 14% in 2021 to 19 kids per childcare worker. Now I wanna stress that this does not mean that there are 16 kids in an individual classroom for every childcare worker. This is just the number of kids in need and the number of workers available to fill that need. So in some cases, there might be more kids per child care worker, right? This is sort of a, a statewide average then. Sure. Yeah, it's a statewide average. And, and some regions obviously did better than others. I mean, there are regions specifically like the non-metro regions were a little bit higher on that end. So like the south central non-metro region, you know, I think that Grant County, that region kind of combined was at 29 kids in, in 2021 per worker. So they could, I mean, the logical conclusion from that is if, you know, we had a certain number back in 2015 and that number has gotten bigger, you know, in more recent years, it would suggest either the population of kids is exploding or the population of childcare workers is imploding and did were you able to figure out which or both of those things? Yeah, that's, that's, that, that's exactly right. So, so when you look at supply and demand like that, and there's a change, the change is either in the supply or the demand. So we looked at the number of kids in need and that declined by a little bit, about 4%, but that's kind of in keeping with the state, you know, as a state, we're getting older, fewer kids are being born, fewer kids are moving here. But then we looked at also the number of childcare workers in the field and that number declined significantly more by 16% over the same time period. So four times, essentially four times the rate. 
so yeah, I mean that that kind of led us down the rabbit hole of, of further in the report looking at wages and things like that. But it's it's definitely a case of childcare workers leaving the field or not joining the field to begin with. Well, tell us about that rabbit hole. What did you start to find out about the wages for childcare workers? Yeah, I mean absolutely. So so there's a bunch of different ways to look at wages. So the first thing we did was. We went through the Bureau of Labor Statistics data, and then we combined that with other data that measures education levels of workers in individual fields. So we found that among workers with similar levels of education compared to childcare workers, we grouped them and of the 50 most similar occupations, so 50 most similar occupations to childcare workers with similar levels of education, childcare workers were earning the 49th least. So that means almost everybody in that bracket was earning more than them. So we thought, okay, well, that's, that's interesting. So let's let's take it a step further. So then we just looked at overall wages and we looked at 546 odd occupations. And of the 546 in 2015, they were earning, I believe it was the 28th least. So 28th least of 546 in 2015. That means almost everybody in that group was earning more than childcare workers. So then we wanted to look at, okay, how did this change over time, right? We know that wages have increased over the past couple of years. We've seen these inflationary pressures the past couple of years, especially the workforce, the unemployment rate is very low. So people are getting paid more and more money to stay in the workforce. So, okay, let's see how childcare fared in that. So then we looked and they went from 28th least paid. They got some wage increases, but then they went to 23rd least paid, 18th least paid. And by 2022, they were the 13th least paid occupation among those 546. That means 533 occupations out of that group were making more than childcare workers. So you did see some progression there, though, in terms of where they ranked. But how much of that is due to the federal child care counts funding, which is set to expire? Sure. So we didn't isolate exactly what was due to child care counts, right? Because child care counts money was added into wages that they were earning, whether it was, you know, child care counts funding could be added in as increased wages, one-time bonuses, whatever that was categorized as, you know, it's different by provider, but that was captured in the Bureau of Labor Statistics data. So we did see that regardless of the child care funding, they did, so they saw overall wage increases, but relative to their peer occupations, they still went down in ranking, which means that yes, they were getting pay increases, but other occupations were getting more and faster pay increases. And as they teach us in economics, a rational self-actualizing agent will thereby leave that profession and go somewhere else, right? And that's what you're seeing. Yeah, so, so that's one of the things we talk about. In the report, we call it kind of the passion versus paycheck, right? So you have these jobs. I would count childcare workers as one of them, maybe nurse, a teacher. You go into the field knowing that you're probably going to earn a little bit less money than you would have in some other industry. But you go into the field, you know that, but you, don't, you go into the field because you like the job. You love the work. You're passionate about it. But at some point, that work becomes not as valuable, meaning, meaning that somebody across the street who's all of a sudden making two, three, four, five thousand dollars $5,000 more a year, that gap in what you could be earning and what you're earning now, it becomes too much. And then, then you really start to look and see, okay, maybe I got to switch careers here. And I think we've seen that accelerate over the past couple of years with how much cost of living has gone up with, with the inflation that we've seen and just, I mean, the overall price increase of everything. So I think that's what we're seeing over the past couple of years as more and more people leave this, this field. WORT feature contributors Dylan Brogan and Brenda Conkle have an update on the latest government going-ons in this week's edition of Forward Lookout. 
We have Brenda Conkle on the line joining us to tell us about what's happening this week in local government. Hello, Brenda. Hey, how's it going? It's going just fine. Tuesday, Dane County Public Protection and Judiciary Committee. They're having a hybrid meeting and they're talking about some grants. They are. They got three different grants. One is for speed enforcement, one's for the seatbelt enforcement, and the other is for impaired driver's enforcement. So um, lots of money to give people tickets. Um, And then they're also going to be looking at an ordinance to change the penalties for possession of drug paraphernalia. And then they are going to be talking about the budget process and their priorities. Our time is short today, so let's just get a quick update on what's happening on Thursday, 5.30, with the Health and Human Needs Committee. So Health and Human Needs will be talking about authorizing a grant for mental health and trauma recovery program for the healthcare workforce. Um, and I believe that that is some additional funding there. And then also they'll be getting a report on car camping. I know one of the staff people there have been working on this for quite some time. Uh, There's nothing linked to see the car camping report, so you'll have to attend if you're interested. Um, And then they're getting a couple other reports about how the ARPA funds have been being spent. Car camping definitely has to do uh, with with housing, right, at the end of the day? Oh, yeah, definitely. Um, Yeah, the city campground is one one option for people who are sleeping outside. Um, But I know that a lot of the folks who are sleeping outside in their cars would love to have a place where they know that they're safe at night. And there's not neighbors and others that are constantly calling on them. So, um, yeah, we'll see once what the what the county has to say about that. All right. Let's go on to the city of Madison. Nine thirty on Tuesday. The Board of Review is meeting at the Madison Municipal Building, and it looks like uh, mall owners are attending in force. This is their second appeal, essentially, so they can appeal their assessment. Well, and yeah, what are they appealing? Uh, their assessment of their property. Um, usually they're trying to get it lowered so that they have to pay less taxes. Um, but East Town Mall is assessed at $34 million, and West Town Mall is assessed at $68 million. So it's not, it's a big chunk of change there. Yeah, wow. I didn't, hmm. I, being from the East Side, I'm not sure I agree with that, but... <laughs> um, but yeah, what? Wow, East Town is half the value of West Town. That's what that's what it says here. I I don't know if they have more space out at West Town, perhaps. I I think it is bigger. Well, we'll let well, the West Side win that one. <laughs> also, with the City of Madison, the Finance Committee, it's getting in a real big budgeting time. Uh, they're meeting four thirty on Tuesday. And that's a virtual meeting. It is. Um, they have a whole bunch of personnel items. And then they have the Acre Pre-Development Grant Program, which is for people of color to become developers. Um, so that's an interesting program. They're paying $445,000 to Sergenian's floor coverings to remove and reclaim and then install new carpeting at Monona Terrace. That is some of the most mm. expensive carpeting that there is ever. <laughs> um, usually that's not even the cost of the carpeting. That's just the work that needs to be done to do it. And they do this kind of, I mean, this happens like every decade, it seems like. It does. It happens at least every 10 years, maybe even every seven years. Wow. Um, so it's a Usually the carpeting is over a million dollars, so it's a big expense. Frank Lloyd Wright is laughing at us from the grave. Because um, <laughs> right. it's so beautiful, beautiful, beautiful carpeting. You can only have that carpeting in it. Exactly. <laughs> but go ahead. Uh, let's finish up with finance. What else are they talking about? All right. They can also have a parking lease for um, the Overture Center. They're renting uh, 25 to 75 um, spaces to the Hubby building. And then they are going to be looking at the capital budget. Oh, and they'll also be talking about supporting having a nuclear-free 
uh, zone in Madison. Basically, what are they doing that through city purchasing, saying that the city cannot purchase um, from nuclear weapons producers? Oh, well, hopefully they won't want anything from the U.S. government. <laughs> right. <laughs> Don't mind me over here. <laughs> we really needed a, a street sweeper from Lockheed Martin. <laughs> yeah, right. <laughs> All right. Well, thank you so much for the update. We really appreciate it, especially on a pledge week. It's such a public service. So thank you for doing that. All the time for us, Brenda. Right, you're welcome. <laughs> This Saturday, September 30th, is the anniversary of one of the worst racially motivated massacres in the nation's history. It started when 100 African Americans, mostly sharecroppers, met in an Arkansas church to form a union. Late that night, white supremacists gathered outside the church and opened fire at armed guards protecting the union meeting. The tragedy occurred toward the end of Red Summer. Feature contributor Harry Richardson has the story. For Joe Hill and Cesar Chavez, who fought in their own time. For our brothers and our sisters, up and down that picket line. For the unnamed and unnumbered, who struggle brave and long. For the union men and women, standing up and standing strong. This Saturday, September 30th, is the anniversary of the Elaine Massacre in Arkansas, one of the worst tragedies of racial violence in the nation's history. About 100 African Americans, mostly sharecroppers, knew the chance they were taking attending a meeting of the Progressive Farmers and Household Union of America, PFHUA, to organize for better pay. The union placed armed guards outside the church where the meeting occurred to protect them from attack. At 11 p.m., a group of white men fired shots into the church. A shootout broke out, leaving a white sheriff's deputy injured and a white railroad security officer dead. Word spread like wildfire about the deaths, along with the baseless rumor that the sharecroppers were leading an organized insurrection against white residents of Phillips County. Governor Charles Brough called in 500 soldiers to, as the Arkansas Democrat put it, round up the heavily armed Negroes. The troops were under orders to shoot to kill any Negro who refused to surrender immediately. But they went far beyond their orders, joining local vigilantes and killing at least 200 African Americans. Some accounts estimate many more people were killed. No one really knows. The killing was indiscriminate, men, women, and children. Amidst the violence, five whites died for those deaths, but not for the African Americans. Someone would have to pay. This horror was probably the worst incident of Red Summer. Between 1918 and late 1919, there were 10 major riots, dozens of minor ones, racially charged clashes, and almost 100 lynchings as white Americans tried to keep African Americans from asserting their rights in the aftermath of World War I. This period was the start of a fight back that led nationally to major growth of the NAACP and other civil rights groups. Those asserting their rights were often war vets. Many whites believed that these vets, including Robert Hill, who co-founded PFHUA, posed a major threat. During the massacre, Arkansas and Leroy Johnston, who had spent nine months recovering in a hospital from injuries suffered in the trenches in France, was pulled from a train shortly after returning home and was shot dead, along with his three brothers. The white power structure kept out industries and businesses that would threaten their control over the local labor market. Some African Americans had managed to obtain land and prosper anyway, teaching and running their own businesses. Richard Wright echoed this theme in his autobiography, Black Boy, recalling the 1916 lynching of his uncle and Elaine, targeted because of resentment over his flourishing liquor business. In a way, Wright's daughter, Julia, told the London paper The Guardian, 
Uncle Hoskins was one of the many canaries in the mineshaft of the Elaine massacre to come. Julia was among those interviewed by The Guardian in an oral history piece written in 2021. The scholarly consensus, says Paul Ortiz, director of the Samuel Proctor Oral History Program at the University of Florida, is that oral histories should be viewed as authoritatively as written records. He added, state records of anti-black massacres are often not dependable because they were generated by law enforcement agencies and officials who actually participated in the violence. The Committee of Seven, local elites, businessmen, the mayor, the sheriff, a judge, formed a group to investigate the killings. The committee pressured for confessions from 12 local activists that were brought to trial. The suspects were tortured by deputies and a special agent of the Missouri Southern Pacific. Regional newspapers gave the committee favorable coverage. National press, including the New York Times, echoed local reporting. Heidi B. Wells, the pioneering journalist and anti-lynching advocate, reported more than 100 black men and women were indicted on a conspiracy theory of a black insurrection to seize land from area planters. To counter this narrative, Walter White of the NAACP, whose appearance allowed him to blend in with white residents, posed as a reporter, stated, careful examination does not reveal a dastardly plot which has been charged, and the union had no designs on an uprising. His work appeared in The Nation and the NAACP paper, The Crisis. The black press took up the case. Eventually, white papers included this account, galvanizing supporters. Grassroots groups helped to fund lawyers. The NAACP joined in, and the cases wound up in a Supreme Court claim that the defendant's 14th Amendment rights were violated. In February 1923, by a 6-2 margin, the court agreed. The Elaine 12 were free. The Moore v. Dempsey case provided momentum for early civil rights lawyers and paved the way for later victories in the 50s and 60s. And that is our story for today. For the past is the past, I'm Harry Richardson. now 6.51 p.m. and you're listening to the live local news on WORT. The Donut King is a documentary about, well, the Donut King. It features Ted Noy, a Cambodian immigrant and risk-taking businessman who builds an empire of California donut shops. Theater Camp is a fun mockumentary about a summer theater camp in upstate New York. Both just started streaming on Hulu and other streaming services, and feature contributor Harry Richardson has the reviews. Ted opened up 70 donut shops and he gave Cambodian refugees a chance to really make it in America. I sponsor more than 100 families. It spread like wildfire, you know, so fast, so fast. And that was a clip from the trailer for The Donut King, directed by Alice Kanyu. This is a pretty good documentary on a fascinating and flawed character, Ben Tech, Ted Noy, who, for a time, lived the American immigrant dream. Noy was a poor, bright kid from a rural village in Cambodia, raised by his Chinese mother. He moved to Phnom Penh, the capital, at the urging of his mother, for an education. As a teen, he met Suganthini, who 
took the American name Christie, and they fell in love and married. Through his brother-in-law, Noy became a major in the army, where he eventually became a military attaché at the Cambodian embassy in Thailand. But their fairly comfortable life abruptly ended when the brutal Khmer Rouge took over in 1975. Ironically, President Ford insisted the U.S. should welcome 130,000 refugees from Vietnam and Cambodia. Noi was on the last flight out of Phnom Penh. Noi, Suganthi, Ni, and family arrived in California on one of the first refugee flights. And this all comes out gradually over the course of the documentary. Noi again has nothing and has to start over. His family is sponsored by a Los Angeles area minister where Noi gets a job as a janitor. This isn't enough money, so he gets a job as a sales clerk and a night gas station attendant. One night, bored at the gas station, he darts across the street into the busy donut shop. It is love at first sight. The sweet confection reminds him of Cambodian sweets he left behind, and he sees how busy the shop is, even late at night, and senses an opportunity. A woman at the counter told him about a training program run by the big California donut chain, Winchell's. Ted becomes their first Southeast Asian trainee. Taking advantage of the government affirmative action plan was something not mentioned in the documentary. Once he completed the training, learning to bake, take care of the payroll, cleaning, sales, etc. Winchell's gave him a shop to run in a tourist spot near his home. Sugandini was the upfront person. As Noi noted, everyone loved her, despite her limited English. Soon, the whole family is working in the donut shop, day and night. In a year, Noi manages to put a deposit on a second donut shop named Christie's, where Suganthini is again the public face of the store. Noi decided to sponsor other Cambodian refugees. He eventually sponsored 100 families, setting them up in donut shops, taking a cut of the action, making millions for himself. Tragically, he becomes addicted to gambling and loses it all, alienating his fellow Cambodians and family in the process. He returns for a time to Cambodia. Unfortunately, Guyu's doc doesn't take up this darker story, just his affair and split with his wife and family. He's broke, but on his second stay there, through a contact, breaks into the real estate business, makes a second fortune. He remarries and has two kids. He goes into politics and invests in an ill-advised scheme to develop a new strain of rice. He loses it all again. He returned to LA because he feared harm from political enemies. The documentary helped him to amend his relationship with his family and fellow Cambodians. The story that is told here is a fascinating one of family, hard work, luck, and donuts. Worth watching, it recently started streaming on Hulu. Up next, something on a lighter side that sings. Welcome, auditioners. You guys are so talented, so unbelievable. This will break you. This will fully destroy you. Congratulations on being the most talented kids at camp. And that was a clip from the trailer for the mockumentary Theater Camp, directed by Molly Gordon and Nick Lieberman. It's just what the name implies, a comedy about summer camp for aspiring young actors. Theater Camp is set in the Adirondacks, New York. The eternally underfunded camp is further imperiled when its founder and head, Joan, Amy Sedaris, falls into a coma after a strobe lighting incident at a high school production where she and her partner have gone to recruit potential campers. The accident is called the first Bye Bye Birdie related injury in the history of Passaic County. This is pretty typical of the humor in the film. It seems like our writers, longtime friends, and co-workers, director Lieberman, actors Molly Gordon, Ben Platt, and Noah Galvin, sat around and told stories about their days at a theater camp until a story for the movie emerged. Platt and Gordon play a pair of camp counselors, Amos and Rebecca Diane. This is a fun ensemble cast of camp kids and teachers, all intimidatingly talented. The fly in the ointment is the unfortunate clueless son of Joan Troy, 
Jimmy Tato, who's called in to run the camp in Joan's absence. Things go from bad to worse. There are several other predictable subplots that are more or less satisfactorily solved by the end. One of the most enjoyable characters, even though stereotypical like most of the cast, was dance instructor Clive, Nathan Lee Graham. All in all, a fun film with several good show tunes. It just started streaming on Hulu. For WRT's Monday Movie Review, I'm Harry Richardson. And that does it for our show. Thanks for listening to WORT's Live Local News at 6. Your headline writer this evening was newly affianced Nate Carlin. Congrats, Nate. Special thanks to feature contributors Harry Richardson, Brenda Conkle and Dylan Brogan, Brian Standing, Nicholas Leet for technical production, and Mike Moen of the Wisconsin News Connection. Ken Brady engineered this show, Faye Parks produced this newscast, and Sholly Pittman is the news director at WORT. I'm your host, Sam Swartz. And I'm your host, Rachel Fields. Stay up to date with the WORT Local News Podcast. Subscribe on iTunes Podcasts, Spotify, and wherever else you listen. Up next is the most freeform show on your radio dial, The Access Hour. Have a great night.